Good evening. What a joy it is to be gathered again in the Lord's house, to be able to worship Him, come together as God's people, and set our hearts towards Him. A very, very warm welcome to all of you tonight, and it is my prayer that God would encourage your hearts, and that you might go forth into another week very full with the Lord. Well, we have gathered here tonight to worship the one true living God, and so I'd like to invite you to stand, please, as we come into God's presence. And as God himself calls us to worship him with the words of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, even the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Let's pray. Lord our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that the tiny little sparrow and swallow can find a home with you. And as Jesus told us, how much more are we worth to you than a sparrow? And so we pray, Lord, that as we draw near to you, as we enter your house with thanksgiving and praise, that you would accept us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be pleased to smile upon us and fill our hearts with joy. Lord, we pray that you would help us to worship you aright. Help us to hear your word. Help us to pray that all things might be done to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the word of come thou fount of every blessing. Yeah. 
seated. We're turning through the book of Ruth this evening as we continue our way through the story of the Bible. We find ourselves picking up in Ruth chapter 4. We remembered last night that kind of proposal that we saw in chapter 3 as Ruth drew into the threshing floor at her mother's command. And now we find Ruth 4 and the ending of the story. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Marlon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then 
Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word to us. Boaz is a wonderful example of godliness, isn't he? Following all the way through, being a godly elder and a godly older man. And we're going to be looking at that later in our sermon tonight. So keep the picture of Boaz in the back of your mind as we approach our text a little bit later on. But let's come to the Lord in a time of prayer.
Do we have any children that want to come to the front this evening? Well, children, okay, difficult question. What am I? A human, yes. Okay, what sort of a human am I? A male. Great job. I'm a man. I'm glad you know that. I am a man. Uh, What does it mean for me to be a man? What sort of stuff do men do? Go to work. That's right. What else do men do? Take care of, look after the household, right? Do all the dishes. Oh, no, not that type. No, I'm joking. I'm just joking. (laughs) That's right. They look after the house. What other things? Can you think of anything else? What do daddies do? Yeah, they help look after the kids. That's right. Now, who gets to pick what it means to be a man? God. Why? Why do you think? He's the ruler of everything. Yeah, fair. Good point. Anyone think of any other reasons? Would there be someone that would be better at deciding what a man is or what they should be like? No. One of the things is God's the creator, right? So he made men and he made women. And so he knows what's best for them. Well, we're not so much thinking tonight about men in general like just generally what it means to be a man, that'd be a bit boring, right? But we're thinking about what it means to be a godly man tonight because God wants us to honor him, not just generically, but he wants us to honor him as men or as women. And so Paul writes to Titus and he's like, hey, when you're out working in the church, when you teach the men, teach them to be godly men. And when you teach the woman, teach them to be godly women. And we're going to unpack godly men tonight. And Lord willing, next week we'll unpack godly women. And then hopefully we'll be able to get a bigger understanding of what it means to be who we are. It's not always easy though. It can be hard to be holy. It can be hard to be godly and to follow what God has laid out for us. But he has given us the Holy Spirit that we might become more like Jesus, right? So let's pray, and we'll ask him to help us do that. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you have put your spirit within us, that we might walk in faithfulness before you. And so we pray that as we go forward as men and women, that you would help us to live godly lives, holy lives, and that we would honor you with every fiber of our being. Help these little children to be trained up in the way they should go, that they might look to dads and mums and see how they ought to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, I love you, Lord, and then you guys can find your worksheets. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you. 
If you have your Bibles with you this evening, we're turning once again to the letter of Titus, or letter to Titus, I should say. Titus, and we're picking up in chapter 2. We'll read through the first 10 verses, but we're looking primarily just at verse 2. So it was Titus chapter 2, and we'll pick up our reading at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we consider it, let's come to him in a time of prayer. Father, as we draw near to you now to hear your voice, we do pray that you would speak with clarity that through your Son, by your Holy Spirit, in the preaching of your word, we would hear the very words of God. For you have promised that when your word is preached, you speak. And so we pray, Lord, that, that as we come to you tonight, that you would feed us till we want no more that you would nourish us, that we have all that we might need for another week, that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ and the one who sent him and the Holy Spirit with a whole heart, and that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, help us to behold your truth tonight and help me to speak it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, as Christians, we know that we're meant to live holy lives, right? Most of us, I'm assuming. Having grown up in good Christian homes or had good exposure to the Word of God, most of us don't come from prosperity teaching or, or anti Nomian teaching, most of us are pretty good on the fact that we have to grow in holiness and godliness, right? 
In fact, Hebrews 12, 14 would tell us to strive for the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. So holiness is a premium in the Bible, right? We know that. You might even say it's a mark of a true child of God. Not that you are perfectly holy now, but that you are growing in holiness. You're to a lesser or greater degree consistently being made into the image of Christ. You are growing in godliness and holiness. Now, that's very easy to say, isn't it? And godliness, like holiness, these are words that we throw out lots and we pray them. God, help me to be more godly. Help me to be holy. Help me to live as you want. But sometimes it can be really hard to figure out just what that is. What does godliness look like? I mean, I know that the easy answer is Jesus, right? It's like, well, Jesus is holiness. But what does that look like? What does godliness look like today for you and for me in the workplace, in your home, in your family, in the church, day to day? What, what, to put it another way, what does it look like to actually just clothe yourself in godliness? To put off sin and to put on godliness, as the New Testament tells us to. Well, we're going to be sort of putting our thinking towards that as we journey through chapter 2. I said last Sunday night that chapter 2 verse 1, which introduces us to the section, shows us what Titus is to do as a minister of the gospel in the island of Crete. Remember that? We talked about the fact that Titus was not just to teach sound doctrine, but to teach if you have a look at the text, you'll see it, that which accords with sound doctrine. And we talked about the fact that that is both sound doctrine, but especially that which is produced by sound doctrine, that which is in keeping a life that flows out of and reflects healthy, sound, God-honoring doctrine. But what does that look like? Well, Paul, being the fabulous teacher, answers that question for us, doesn't he? Now, you do have to appreciate Paul is not, in chapter 2, giving you an uh, exhaustive list of all the things, like a checklist, you know, like, well, if I just do these six things, I've got it nailed. No, it's, he's using general principles, general teaching to exhort Titus as to the types of things that he should teach and sort of like the core essential things that are part of a godly lived life. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to take sort of different groupings, right? So tonight, as I said to the children, we're doing the older men. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take the, the women, both, I haven't quite decided yet, but probably older and younger at the same time because it's all kind of connected together. And then the younger men, possibly after that, and we'll just, I don't know, see if Jesus has come back by after that or not. But tonight we're thinking about godly men. You know, and, and really the question that, that Paul is seeking to provide Titus an answer to is, what does godliness look like in the particular situation I find myself in? In other words, what does it mean for me as a man 
to live a godly life? And what does it mean for you as a woman or as a man to live a godly life? And Lord willing, we'll be able to understand that. But firstly, just briefly notice that the majority of the emphasis in this chapter, when you consider the different people, there's older men, there's older women, there's younger women, and there's young men, most of the emphasis is given to older people. Do you notice that? There's more words, more emphasis. In fact, he doesn't actually tell Titus to even teach the younger women. In fact, there's only one command that Titus is to teach to younger people, and that's just that the younger men should be self-controlled. Everything else is directed towards the older people. Striking, isn't it? I mean, if I was to ask you to give me a list of the sorts of things, the sorts of character traits and behaviors that the different brackets in our church should embrace to be godly, I wonder what you would do. You'd probably do the same thing as me, right? You'd think to yourself, well, the children should act like this, and the middle-aged people should look like this, and the young adults and the teenagers and the old people, and how, this is all the different things they need to do. But, but Paul doesn't do any of that. He just effectively addresses the older people. I wonder if you can work out why. It's, it's all to do with the way the Bible thinks, to make the Bible into a person, the way the Bible thinks, which is everything is integrated. You know, in this church, we do integrated worship, age-integrated worship, which means what? The kids don't go off to Sunday school, right? Everyone's together. Families worship together. People are together. We have things like prayer brunches that have people that are getting a bit on the older end and people that are right down in the younger end, and they're all gathered together. We don't have old people's groups and young people's groups. We don't segregate the people. The reason being is that the only way the young people are going to know how to walk faithfully with the Lord is to do what? Follow the example of the people older than them, right? So Paul effectively goes for the jugular or goes for the root of the tree and says, if, if Titus, if you can get the old people doing what they're meant to be doing, everything else will follow. Because they, being the ones who are mature, generally speaking, the ones who are more godly because they've had more experience, they will come alongside the younger ones and build them up. This is why, speaking to you older ones in the room right now, it is so absolutely important for you to do what you can. I know there's old age and infirmity, but to do what you can to come alongside those that are younger than you in the congregation, whether it be in a prayer brunch, whether it be on the Sunday service, wherever it be. Look for opportunities where you might grab a young person and say to them, let me show you how to walk with the Lord. It's not just parents that have to do that, right? It's a duty for all of us. One of my favorite examples of this was a man called Jeremy Welsh. None of you have any idea who this guy is, and probably almost no one in the face of the planet knows who this man is. But my wife and I do, because he left an amazing impression upon us. He was a tiny, and I mean tiny, like tiny little Englishman with a glorious beard, just so happened. But he had a glorious beard. That's the only thing I remember. No, I'm joking. So he, he helped at the youth group that Joe Seller and I helped at in Huntley. And our youth group was, 
I mean, for the kids that come to our youth group, it's nothing like our youth group, okay? We had about 80 kids. Uh, 60 of them were from extremely rough backgrounds uh, to the point where we, I can remember an incident when a girl dislocated her hip at youth group. We took her to the hospital. We took her home. By the time, we, I mean, you know what A&Es are like, right? By the time we got home, it was like one in the morning. We went up, we knocked on the door, and the uncle came out and verbally abused us for waking him up. Even after we informed him of why we were standing here at this time, he still verbally abused us for waking him up. Those were the sorts of people we were dealing with, right? And this, and this tiny little Englishman, who would have been probably at a guess in his late 50s, early 60s, was the most respected person in this entire youth group. And he would stand at the door because we, had, we, had, we used to have kids that would come along from the police, so we had to have doors locked in between the hours of youth group. And so he would stand at the door, especially when things were a little bit rough, and people would come up to him who were like six foot five and 15 feet wide, and they'd be like, I'm going outside for a cigarette. And he would say to them, uh, no, you're not, you're not allowed to. And you know, he's like, no, you're not, you're not allowed to. But you know what? No one ever crossed him. And he would come alongside the most uh, hurt and pained and the most tough and rugged individual and just take them under his wings and care for them. And he led many people to the Lord just by faithfully ministering to the younger people. He couldn't keep up. He couldn't play all the games. In fact, he just didn't. But week in and week out, he was there opening up the word, caring for people, doing what he could as an older man. And that should be um, an example for all of us, right? Because almost all of us have someone younger than us. Almost. Most of us can find someone younger than us that we can minister to. In fact, it's, you know, it's, it's something I love about this church. We were commenting on this last night, Josella and I. There was an event here last night, and, and there was some dancing going on, and there was some little, little kids getting involved, and they were being helped by kids that were like four years older. And, you know, when I, I thought to myself, when I was that age, I would have been like, you know, get this kid out of the way, what a nuisance, what's this little tiny child? But they were just there ministering to them, helping them, helping them have fun, helping them join in. It's a family, right? It's a beautiful picture of what it means to fulfill this. But all of that was a massive aside that took up way too much time. So let's get back to text. Older men, godly men. What does it look like to be a godly man? These are generalities that are applicable to all of us. What does a godly man look like? Well, firstly, a godly man is marked by respect. He will be marked by respect. Have a look. These these six words that we're given, there's six things given to us in this text. We can break them up into two chunks. The first three being marked by respect and the second three being marked by virtue. So firstly, marked by respect. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Sober-minded. The word itself is actually pretty vague. kind of just says sober. And you can use it literally like, you know, not a drunk. Or you can use it metaphorically like you're careful and sober in your thinking. So which is it? Well, if you go to some versions, you'll find temperate, you'll find sober, you'll find sober-minded, you'll find self-controlled, you'll find a bunch of different ways of describing it. So what way do we use it? The answer is yes, right? 
Because if you're not sober in your mind, you're not going to be sober in your behavior, correct? It's both an internal and an external reality. An older man is to be marked as someone who is careful in the way he acts. Both, both in the way he uses things, not just drink, but food, TV, there's all sorts of different things, but also sober in the way he thinks, in the way he judges other people. It's an inner and an outer sobriety. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because let me ask you, how much respect do you have for the guy you see stumbling down the road, doing his best to simply not fall over? Not much respect, right? You think to yourself, what's wrong with this clown? Would someone get him like some water or something? Like, let's help this guy out. You don't think to yourself, well, here is clearly a role model for me. This is someone I definitely want to imitate. Or someone who's really rash in their decision-making. Someone who's bouncing from one thing to another all the time. It's not sober. They're to be sober in their inner and outer working. Secondly, Paul says they're to be dignified. Dignified. Uh, I'm not sure what imagery pops into your head when you think of dignified. There's probably a bunch of you having different Things some of you are thinking that sounds a bit pompous, you know, is he like one of those dudes with a cane who looks down upon people? Is he dignified like that? There's a monocle in his eye. What is dignified? Well, the, the word uh, connotes the idea of someone who evokes respect. In other words, it's the sort of person that walks into a room and people would, if we still did this, people would automatically want to stand up in their presence. Yeah, to, you could liken it to, just imagine for a second if we were sitting here and, and Bach walked in. Would you be like, oh, it's just Bach? Would you not be like, I, I thought he was dead. But apart from that, I can't believe he's dead. You know? Respect. That's the type of person. And, and this is not a... This, this word for dignified is not like a cultural thing. You know, part of the problem with things like respect, it's, it can be very cultural, right? So in, in one culture, what respect looks like is very different than in another culture. But the question is not how the respect is communicated. The question is, does the character and godliness of this person bring respect out of you. That's what this looks like. When you rub shoulders with this person, you can't help but respect them and honor them and hold them in high esteem. One more, number three, they're to be self-controlled. It's translated as self-controlled. It's a wisdom word. I don't know if you've ever thought about self-control as being a wisdom reality. This is a wisdom word. You could translate it maybe as prudent control, prudent self-control. You need prudence to be self-controlled, right? I mean, you can just be withstrained, but there's a difference between withstrained and self-control. This is the picture of a man who, who doesn't 
go to extremes in one direction or another. He's not given to making extreme decisions or taking extreme actions. So he's not the kind of guy who one minute flips off his handle at one person. You've seen this before? You tell someone something small and they go ballistic and then you tell them something major and they're like, oh, it's not that big a deal. And you're like, I thought I was going to get murdered. Not given to extremes, but guided and controlled by the wisdom of God. See, a, a godly man is a respectable man. Not in the sense of how our society uses it, but he is a man who through his conduct and character of honoring God and doing that which the word of God commends to him, Almost forces, though that for, maybe draws out is maybe a better word, draws out respect from you. You just find yourself naturally looking up to him. I wonder if you've ever had someone like that in your life, maybe a godly grandfather or a, or a godly father or an elderly friend or someone in the church that you've just, you look up to this person as being like the epitome of, of godly character godly actions. That's the sort of image that God is laying before us. And of course, we can just say, this is Jesus, right? Like that's the easy out card. Just be like Jesus. But here's the thing. Paul's giving these things to us because he's giving us practical instructions on how to live a godly life, right? So he's saying to you, saying to Titus, actually, Titus, teach the men, the older men, teach them to do this. So brothers, older men, do it. Oh, a very simple application, right? Go and do it. Put on soberness. Put on sobriety. Put on respectableness. Put on self-control with wisdom. And if you're not an older gentleman, if you're a younger gentleman, find men that you can respect and walk in their shoes. Look up to them. They are here in this congregation. I won't name them because I don't want to embarrass them. But find them and follow them. Learn from them. And ladies, train up the men in our congregation to do it. Call them into it. Remind them of how much we need this. And pray for them. It's not easy. Pray for them. We need the support of the women in our church to spur us on, right? Hebrews says, stir up love and good works. So stir us up. Don't stir the pot all the time. I know it's tempting for us to stir people's pots all the time. Don't stir the pot. Stir up good works. So, we see here from from Paul, that these men are to be marked by respect. But then there's a second thing, isn't there? As I said, they are to be marked by virtue. Have a look at the text. So sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in, and here's the three virtues they are to have, faith, love, and steadfastness. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You know, to the outside eye, 
He is respectable. But that respectableness should not be limited to just, hey, I gained some respect for me. Because godliness expresses itself outward, right? So this godly man has an outward expression of this. And it's contained in these three virtues. But before we talk about that, just briefly notice what controls it. Paul says, sound in faith, love and steadfastness. Why is it important that he's put sound there? It's that sound slash healthy word that we've run into a few times. We ran into it in chapter 2 verse 1. We ran into it in chapter 1 verse 9. And we see it all over the pastoral epistles to be sound and healthy. It's a reminder for us, isn't it, that these, these virtues and also all of the things we're looking at in chapter 2 are controlled ultimately by the Word of God. Godly masculinity, for lack of a better word, is not defined by cultural norm. It's not def defined by me and my opinion of what I think is a godly man. It's not defined by anything other than God's Word. In order for faith, love, steadfastness to be sound, they must be done, practiced, and held in by sound doctrine. So this is the overflow of sound doctrine, I said, remember? So let's look at these three things together. The first thing is faith. Why must he be a man of faith? Why must he be sound in his faith? Well, Hebrews 11.6 helps us on that. Remember Hebrews 11, that chapter on that hall of faith that we so often love to read? It's speaking about Enoch and the way that Enoch pleased God. Remember, and it has that fascinating thing where it's like, and then he was no more because he just vanished. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. One of the only guys with a body in heaven. But what, what's striking is in 11 verse 6, it says that without faith... No one can please God. Why? Because to please God, you have to know he exists and believe in him. You see, there's, there's no way that a, a man can be godly unless he first loves God. That's why it starts with faith, because the first necessary requirement to being a godly man is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? Because that's the first and greatest commandment. It's not the fourth. It's the first. It's absolutely necessary that a godly man devotes himself to the worship and love of God above everything else. And that's going to mean making some sacrifices, right? It might mean getting up a bit earlier. It might mean losing some time in the evening to gather a family together for family worship. It could mean a whole bunch of different things. But one of the marks and the first mark of virtue is the love of God. The second one, we're told, is just straight up love, right? The sound in faith and in love. It's that agape word, that self-sacrificial love that is to mark husbands and to mark all of us, of course, but especially to mark husbands and leaders as they lay down their lives for those under them. And it's an expression here of loving God, but also loving our neighbor, right? Having faith in God, but that faith in God doesn't stop there. 
but it then turns down and is expressed in the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so a godly man is marked by someone who willingly sacrifices their own good for the sake of those around them, day in and day out. They will willingly take up a thousand crosses for the sake of the people around them. Now, for most of us, that doesn't involve laying down our physical lives, does it? But it can be almost way harder because when you lay your life down, you do it once. You've got to get up every day and do it. Day in and day out, dying for the sake of those around you, for the the little ones in the church, for the medium ones in the church, from the people in your family, for everything, denying yourself for the sake of the good of those around you. It's the fulfillment of the law, isn't it? The first table, love the Lord. The second table, love your fellow neighbor. But there's one more thing, one more virtue. He says, faith, love, and steadfastness. It's patience. You could translate it steadfastness, firmness, consistency. Why is this here? Because faith and love are not easy, are they? I mean, it's easy to say, I, I, I devote myself to God, and it's easy to say, I love my neighbor when everything's going really well, right? What about when your neighbor doesn't love you? What about when your heart is filled with doubts? What about when temptations rage? What about when cancer strikes? What about when your loved one dies? It can be hard, can't it? And so the, the, the godly man is marked by persistence, or I think I, I really appreciated one person who translated it, steadfast in affliction. In other words, you devote yourself to God and you... You love your neighbor even in the fiery furnace, even in times of persecution, even in times of sour life. And these three things are just perfectly married together. John Calvin picks it up really well. He says, with good reason does Paul include these three parts, faith, love, and patience. The sum of Christian perfection." By faith, we worship God, for neither calling upon him nor any exercises of godliness can be separated from it. Love extends to all the commandments of the second table. Next follows patience as the seasoning of faith and love. For without patience, faith would not long endure. And many occurrences are taking place every day, instances of unhandsome conduct or evil temper, which irritate us so much that we should not only be languid, but almost dead to the duties of love towards our neighbor if the same patience did not support us. Do you feel that? Love your neighbor until your neighbor cuts you off at the intersection, right? At that point, I don't need to love him anymore because he's a scumbag. It's not the way it works, is it? There are so many things, John Calvin says, that we would become almost like dead to our duty 
if it was not for the steadfast persistence before the Lord. And what's, what's, what's the application? It's do it, right? Older men, put on faith, devote yourself to the Lord, love your neighbor. Be persistent in good doing. Younger men, look up, follow their example, find a godly man. Women, encourage, exhort, build up. That we might have many of these in our midst. We so need it because we so struggle, don't we? It's so hard to be faithful. And you're like an island in the sea. You know, Paul Paul is encouraging Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine for an obvious reason, right? Because we don't do it. Like, if everyone did this, Paul wouldn't need to teach this, right? But Paul needs to remind us because we fall. And so we get back on the bike, right? Sometimes we just need just a Titus to come alongside and remind us to what's required of us. Why? Because Paul longs for the people of God to put Christ on. And that's true for all of these people. Yes, there's particular things that men are called to because they're called to be leaders. But that doesn't change the fact that every single one of these people is ultimately seeking to put on Christ as image bearers. That men are trying to put on Christ as masculine image bearers. And as we'll see next week, women are called to put on Christ as feminine image bearers. Or, as we saw this morning, to walk in the works that God has set for us, right? Because in this way... God glorifies himself. In this way, the witness of our community is built up. You know, so First Peter, when trials and persecutions come, Peter says, this is what I want you to do. Go and live a godly life. And then they're going to persecute you. And then they're going to ask you why you have such hope. It's the call for every believer to walk in godliness Brothers, may God grant you to do this, to put on Christ by His Spirit, that you might walk faithfully before Him, that we might see you going on and fighting the fight of the faith, right? And growing in godliness and the full stature of Christ and being presented before Him in complete godliness because He who is faithful will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word gives us clear instructions of how we are to live. And we do pray that you would help us indeed to do it. Lord, help those of us who are men to live this way. And help those of us that are women to build up the men in our lives from young to old. Lord, we pray, give us hearts that would be willing to keep your law and to obey your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing, take my life and let it be, and then I'll ask you to remain standing.
brothers and sisters, as you head out to another week, do so with the blessing of God and live before him. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. Amen. Praise God, you angel hosts above. to you.